Welcome to the Life in the Front Office podcast powered by Brain Fuel. Brain Fuel is a cerebral beverage that helps you find your flow state, enhance mental focus, and cognitive endurance. Elevate the brain and the body. To get yours, visit brainfuel.com, B-R-E-I-N, fuel.com, and enter the code LIFO15 at checkout for your 15% off discount, L-I-F-O-1-5, and enjoy today's episode. Welcome to today's episode of Life in the Front Office podcast powered by Brain Fuel here as part of the Sports ETA series, episode five here with Julie Deslier and Will Waller. I'm really excited to talk with Julie uh, being the Senior Vice President and the Chief of, of Paralympic Sport, as well as Will, the CEO of the National Wheelchair Basketball Association. Um, the Paralympic Games are around the corner, Tokyo's around the corner. And LA 2028 is somewhat around the corner. So uh, lots to, you know, see in action, obviously, over the next couple of months uh, with the game starting in, in August 24th through September 5th. Um, but nonetheless, really excited to have both of you on. Welcome. Thanks. Glad to be here. Thanks so much, Jake. Excited to chat with you today. Julie, let's start with you in terms of how you got into the business of, you know, the Paralympics and, and the USOC and, and all that it encompasses. Um, what was your kind of quick uh, journey and roadmap to where you are now? I'm not sure it was quick, Jake, but I'll, I'll try to describe it in a quick fashion. Um, I was an athlete my entire life growing up as a kid through high school, um, competed collegiately at the division one level and really came out of school with no intent of ever going into the sports business world. I was going to go um, be a lawyer in the international relations space. Um, and I think my love of sport pulled me out of that pretty quickly in that I accepted a coaching job right out of graduate school thought I was going to do it for a summer. And here I am 25 plus years later, still in the sport world. Um, so I, I was a coach full time for many years before coming to work at the USOPC. And that's actually how I got my start in Paralympic sport um, was coaching in swimming. And, you know, as coaches do was moving from one job, you know, to the to that next step in my coaching career. And in the late 90s, um, I took over a team that had a young woman who was in high school at the time who was completely blind. And that was my first exposure into the Paralympic movement um, as a coach working with her and, and getting involved with some of the great organizations around the U.S., like the U.S. Association of Blind Athletes, which is, you know, what she was a part of at the time and which is really what hooked me into Paralympic sport. And I've been here ever since. Well, you had quite the background and journey in, in corporate America, HR and so on. Um, talk a little bit about your journey into uh, the seat you sit in now. Yeah, well, I'm, I'm actually a beneficiary of the Paralympic movement and the sport of wheelchair basketball. It, it played a pivotal, pivotal role in my life. Um, so I was shot when I was 18, severely depressed for a couple of years after that, trying to figure out my own disability journey. And then on a Wednesday night in the summer of 1994, after declining several times the invite to go play wheelchair basketball, I'd finally accepted and uh, got out onto the court and you know remember vividly just how big the smile was on my face and the feeling that I was experiencing that night. And, um, and the sport would kind of put me on a completely different uh, path of life. And, um, and as you said, I went on to, you know, uh, 
work in corporate HR for 20 years, kind of climbed the corporate ramp doing that. Uh, but then uh, I felt this urge to try to connect my career with my purpose. And uh, there was a need within the NWBA to um, try to take the reins and, and get us back on track. We were in a, in a difficult spot in uh, 2018. And, uh, and I've been here ever since, just really kind of making sure my cup is refilled every day. And, uh, and, you know, we're returning to sport again right now and making sure that little kids around the country can get that same aha moment where they realize that they also have potential despite maybe having a disability. What was it like to be a team captain on the team for a while, to have that experience of playing, to represent USA across the chest and, and to ultimately understand now the seat that you sit in, what kind of impact you can make for others, as you just mentioned with those aha moments? Yeah, well, it, it's really interesting. We're, we're living through a big shift right now where the athlete voice is critical. And um, there's, there's a very strong push specifically from the USOPC that, you know, they're making sure athlete representation is what it needs to be. At the time in 2012, when I was the team captain of uh, the Paralympic team, I had a great opportunity to be the voice and, and make sure that my teammates, that, that their input was considered and that the staff understood the perspective. And I've always been known as someone who's willing to say something that might be unpopular if it was needed to be said. And uh, so to me, it was a privilege that my teammates would, you know, recognize me as the person to do that. And now I, I think the, the one of the benefits of me being in this role as a former athlete myself is that I understand just how critical it is to seek out the athlete voice. I don't always do it perfectly. You know, we're, we learn every single day and, and there's probably more that we can do. But I, I kind of start from a position of what do our athletes need to be successful in the field of play? And, um, and, you know, again, that's, that's an honor, right? Because I don't think a lot of people understand the amount of sacrifice that people make to be on Team USA. And because, because I live that myself, it, it's kind of front and center in everything I do, wanting to make sure that the athlete perspective is considered. Julie, you mentioned you've, you've kind of been in it for a quick 25 years, as you mentioned. Um, how have you seen the, you know, the athlete's needs change, as Will was talking about, as it relates to the training, the, the year-round support, again, this only happens once every four years for most of these athletes. Some, I would imagine, maybe participate in both the summer and the winter, depending on you know, the sports that they play in. But how has that evolved over the years? Yeah, I think it's evolved tremendously in the time that I've been involved in the Paralympic movement. Um, you know, I'll tell you a, a quick story anecdote, and then I'll, I'll give you some stats on in terms of on the field of play. Um, but when I first got involved in the movement back in the, the late 90s, it was just after the Atlanta Games, um, I was still coaching full time, and I applied to be a coach on the staff for the 1998 World Para Swimming World Championships to be a, a coach on the Team USA staff. And at the time, did my application, super excited, got rejected, you know, the bubble burst. Um, and come to find out a year or two later, once I had been involved in the movement a little bit longer and got to know some of the, the folks in leadership, one of them shared with me what was so critical and, and how we needed to change things. My application had been rejected for that staff because I was a coach. 
And because I was not a rehab therapist or someone with a degree in, you know, disability or kinesiology. Um, and that was really, I think, when the shift in the movement started to happen, um, not only here in the U.S., but internationally as well. And Paralympic sport grew literally by leaps and bounds. Um, you know, some examples I can give you from the field of play, Jake. The women's side of sport, especially just due to the international fields, um, you know, we've got statistics in sports like swimming and track and field where the gold medalist in Athens, that time or that, that distance in those sports didn't make the final in Beijing. And then you had the same thing happen again from the Beijing quad to the London quad. Um, you know, and the Paralympic movement is relatively young. It, it, you know, first games was only in 1960 and the International Paralympic Committee itself has only been around for about 30 years. So I would say we really entered the modern era of the Paralympics probably since 2012. Um, and I say that all encompassing, um, not only the, the elite level of sport on the field of play, which has always been elite, but it's really grown. Um, you know, 20 years ago, you had maybe 90 or 100 countries participating in a summer games. Now you have all 186 members of the International Paralympic Committee um, who are at a summer game. So a lot of growth um, on the field of play, but a lot of growth off as well. Sponsorships, marketing, television coverage. Um, London was really the turning point for that in the movement. Um, and, and we've just seen tremendous things since then. So you mentioned kind of the, the business side of it as well. Will, you mentioned, you know, in 2018 kind of getting, you know, the NWBA back on track and, and understanding um, where it can go, just from a business perspective for our listeners to understand, like, what does it take to operate something like, you know, you're a part of and, uh, you know, is, how many people, right? Like, what, where, where do the sponsors come from? Are they national? Are they international? Are they local? Right. And, and just uh, the different memberships, uh, obviously, across different sports, I would imagine have different, you know, storyline appeals to certain brands as well. Yeah, well, from, from an NWBA perspective, we've been around for 72 years, um, grew out of the um, World War II era where a lot of veterans were coming home and you saw wheelchair basketball beginning to crop up in some of the VA hospitals throughout the US. And then um, in 1949, our founder, Dr. Nugent, um, created the first wheelchair basketball tournament, the first national tournament. And from there, the association began to kind of chart its course, but with a vision that pushed back against the, the then common thinking that more activity for people with disabilities would be detrimental. Um, and, and anyway, the, the sport has just continued to kind of grow both from an awareness perspective, as well as therefore from a participation perspective. But current day, um, pre-COVID anyway, we should say, we had about 3,000 members and 225 teams, which if you think about it in on one hand, you'd say as a, as a Paralympic sport organization, that's great. That sounds like pretty good numbers. But on the other hand, the amount of distance that these participants have to go in order to both train as well as to compete, that's a big barrier to entry for a lot of individuals um, because it's costly to have to travel that far to gain competition. So uh, from our perspective, uh, in order to try to grow those numbers across the association, um, you know, we have essentially an army of volunteers that 
operate at a divisional level, at a committee level, and all the way down to a program level. The vast majority of people are doing it on a volunteer basis. And so one of the biggest challenges we have is to try to align an in, a, a large group of individuals who perform on a volunteer capacity in order to drive uh, the strategy of the organization, which is ultimately to build awareness, build participation, and uh, diversify the revenue streams so that we can continue to put more programming out there at, uh, at the end of the day. But, um, you know, Toyota's come into the Paralympic movement in a really big way the last several years. And they're a marquee sponsor of the NWBA as well as the uh, Paralympic right at the IPC level, the US OPC level. And a lot of what you see happening right now with regard to the visibility of the Paralympics and the amount of coverage that they're gonna have, a lot of that is happening because of the push of a, of a strong sponsor like Toyota. And then they also have um, funded all Paralympians. Um, so each and every US Paralympian is now being uh, sponsored uh, through, through the relationship with Toyota. So a lot of, a lot of activity. And, and then I, what I like to say to people is when you get a blue chip organization like Toyota that's coming into the Paralympics, um, what it does hopefully is encourage people, not just because they're there, but because Toyota would tell you that a sponsorship of, a, uh, of the Paralympics or a Paralympic uh, sport organization, it drives purchase intent more than the sponsorship of any other sporting category uh, that they have. And so hopefully what more uh, sponsors are going to realize is when they get behind the Paralympics, they're going to drive consumer behavior just like Toyota is. No, that's incredible. And, and when you think about uh, how you are placed in terms of, look, the Olympics happen, there's a, a what, a couple weeks, and then the Paralympics happen. How do you make sure that people stay engaged, right? They, they continue to, um, you know, observe and, and watch. And then how do they stay engaged afterwards, right? That's kind of always like, there's this big buildup, big buildup. And then and then what, right? And then it's obviously everyone's working towards the next Olympics, but that's so many years down the road. So how do you keep people engaged from a programming perspective, Will and, and Julie kind of, uh, you know, month after month and year after year to maximize on that experience as a whole? Well, the, the first part of your question is how do we keep them engaged two weeks later so that they come back and, and they watch the 2020 slash 2021 Paralympic Games. I think the biggest thing for me, and it's going to be a great test case this year with NBC, you know, leaning in a bit more this year than they have in the past. I think it's the storytelling. It's the human interest stories that you hear during the Olympics. Every single Paralympian has had some level of adversity that they've had to overcome. And so to the extent that uh, the, the coverage providers actually lean in on that, I think people are gonna be blown away, um, not just at the stories, but then once you hook them in with the stories, I think they're gonna be blown away at what they see in the field of play. Um, as it relates to keeping people engaged in, in my case, wheelchair basketball after, I think with the uh, technology explosion and the ease of putting live streaming out there and, and putting it out there in a, in a well-produced way, that's the best way that we've been able to keep a more engaged audience uh, throughout. And that not only pertains to what we do with our national teams, let's say, for example, uh, next year, if we're hosting a friendly competition, um, we would we would live stream those games and try to give people the content that they're looking for. But we also apply that for our domestic league as well, so that we 
can get more eyeballs on the sport, which ultimately are the types of uh, metrics that the sponsors are looking for as well. Julie, from a, a you know, Team USA perspective, anything to add there? Well, we, we jokingly in the Paralympic movement refer to the Olympics as the test event. So that's our hook to keep people for two more weeks is, is you know, they're watching the Olympics, they're, they're you know, following along and, and watching their favorite sports or their favorite athletes. Um, but we, we definitely want them to stick around for the main, the main show a couple of weeks later. Um, you know, one of the things I'd love to highlight, Jake, is we at the USOPC recently launched a Paralympic awareness campaign. Um, dedicated toward growing Paralympic awareness, not just in the run-up to Tokyo. Obviously, we're focusing on that here over the next month or so. Um, but really, this is a long-term play for us through LA 2028. Um, you know, we have an opportunity to capitalize on a home games in, in the United States seven years from now, um, which is not an opportunity that everyone gets. Um, and growing that Paralympic awareness just in general across the US is, is going to impact positively, not only in terms of athletes into the pipeline, but coaches, officials, you know, event directors, and into the sponsor and marketing space. So the more we can educate, the more we can make Paralympics a, a household, you know, sporting topic of conversation, um, the better it's, it's going to help, um, you know, all of our, our Paralympic sport organizations and national governing bodies in that LA run up. Yeah, absolutely. LA 2028. I know uh, it's seven years, but that'll be, it'll be here before you know it, Julie, it'll be quick. Um, and when you think about 2015, having the Special Olympics, you know, the World Games in LA, obviously some learnings to be able to take from there, just from a, a hosting perspective. Um, there, there's going to be a lot uh, of excitement, I know, around the area uh, as it will, you know, the, the country as a whole. But when you think about um, where Paralympic sport is going, you know, you have 22 summer sports, you have six in the winter, summer, some, you know, you have two added this year in the summer. So like, where does, where's the maximum? How many more sports can you continue to add uh, as the years go on? And, you know, I think, Will, I don't know if there's any other sports that you, you tried your hand at, but, uh, or would love to see uh, in the Paralympics. Um, so 22 is actually the max on the summer side. Um, that is a, that's a contractual number that's out there in the, in the international world between the organizing committees and the IPC and the IOC. The unfortunate part about that 22 is that to get two new sports in, like what happened with Taekwondo and badminton with Tokyo means two others get bumped. Um, so there's, there's kind of a, an ongoing battle, if you will, amongst all of the sport IFs um, every every couple of years when the program is determined to put their best foot forward, um, if they're already on the program, to ensure that they remain on the program. Um, or for those new sports, they're trying to, to get that wedge in on the summer side um, and, and make an impact. Um, and I'm honestly curious to see what will happen with the summer sport program for LA. Um, the IPC will determine that six years out. So that's going to be next year sometime um, in 2022. We'll have those sports finalized. But I think there's some you know, some new sports coming into the, the Paralympic world, things like surfing, which is, you know, by and large, a, a cultural 
fit for someplace like Los Angeles and California. So it'll be very interesting to see what the LA sport program looks like now that the IPC has kept it, you know, pretty, pretty consistent for the last few games with a few minor changes. Um, the positive news is there's a lot of room for growth on the winter side in the Paralympic games with only five or six sports on the program right now. Um, and, and that's an area of growth that can can be focused on in the future. And if the US gets a, a future winter games somewhere into the 2030s, that's obviously something that will become important for us to, to help influence. Well, you learn you learn something new every day, 22 sports being the max. So there you go. Well, well, from a from a basketball perspective, um, just obviously what you've seen, you know, and being able to have the effect of the sport be in the Paralympics, you know, to then affect everything else outside of it. Um, what's that massive effect and impact uh, for a sport being added, right? Or a sport um, having, you know, multiple consecutive appearances in a sense? Yeah, well, I think, I think from my perspective, you know, the role of wheelchair basketball is it's, um, it's such a great influence on the movement in general, because it's, it's, aside from the chair, it's, it's so close to the stand-up game. And it's just a really great um, feature sport, in my own opinion, to bring people into the movement and then hopefully begin to expose them to other sports that are out there. But you asked the question earlier about as, as we lead up to 28, you know, eventually coming on our home turf, you know, how do, how do I think about that? From my perspective, Jake, the, one of the number one things on the high performance side of my job that, that I want to do is make it as competitive a process as possible, because the more competitive it is to get onto uh, Team USA uh, from a wheelchair basketball perspective, the greater likelihood that we're going to put our best product onto the court when, when we lace them up and go and play in LA in, in 2028. And we've got a great pool of talent within our organization, but how do we expand it? How do we continue to expose them to the different components of sport performance so that it's as competitive as possible? And I'm sure all of our athletes right now would say it's it's pretty damn competitive already. But uh, from my perspective, we just want to continue to ratchet it up because when we do, Team USA is going to be successful. Yeah, Julie mentioned kind of the raising the bar every Olympics, right? There's always new records being set. There's always you know, better and better competition. So excited to see, um, you know, what that brings as we kind of wrap up and, and I want to uh, introduce our brain fuel segment here where, you know, we're, we're talking about being mentally prepared, right, for um, a, a Paralympics to happen and being mentally prepared to also go four years, right, from, from games to games and kind of there's a, there's a different mentality you have to have Julie, just from your, your career already um, and the amazing things that you've been able to accomplish, what's been the, kind of the most, um, most applicable trait and or kind of mental um, skill set that you've had to have kind of throughout your career? I think the most, um, the most valuable or the most important for me, Jake, has been um, I've, I've always, when you do all those personality tests and all the very, the, the various assessments, right? Um, one of the things that I always get characterized as is a lifelong learner. Um, I love to read. I love to dig into new things, you know, learn new things. And I think that, you know, continual seeking of new knowledge has been absolutely critical to my career, particularly 
when I moved into the Paralympic space, call it from the able-bodied or the Olympic world in sport, um, because there is, there's so much data, there's so much to learn, there's so many different sports, then you add in classification and all the impairments and everything going on in the Paralympic movement, um, that, that, you know, propensity just to continue learning as I go and applying that to what I do every day has been absolutely invaluable. Well, from a, an athlete standpoint, what's the most mental, you know, most important mental compartment of not only competing, but then also um, trying to make the Olympic team, you know, uh, each instance? Yeah, I, well, I think it's about, you know, being very intentional about what your goals are. And, you know, ultimately as an athlete, when, when you're trying to make a team, so the ultimate goal or objective is to make the team. But if all you ever write down is make the team, you're never really going to hit some of those micro goals along the way. So for me, it's always about kind of putting them into digestible pieces and making them as specific, measurable, achievable, relevant, time-bound. You can hear the HR guy and me coming out right now, right? So you guys have all heard that. Yep. <laughs> um, but, um, but it's interesting that Julie talked about when she made the, the transition from you know, the Olympic able-bodied world into Paralympic, there was so much more that she had to learn and, and being a lifelong learner. For me, one of the most powerful things of uh, within the relationship that the National Wheelchair Basketball Association has with the USOPC is the ability to tap into so many other NGB leaders who have probably been at the place that I'm in right now. So instead of me you know, feeling that it's a weakness and reaching out to some of those people and asking for help, actually doing the exact opposite and saying, okay, listen, here's where the NWBA is. Here's where we want to go. How do I tap into this network of NGB leaders and experts at the US OPC? And the coolest thing about it, aside from the structure that, you know, that they're available to me, is that everyone wants to help, you know? So like, we're all part of this Team USA family. And, and everyone's really going in the same direction. So like when you pick up the phone and, and you reach out to somebody, it's amazing just how willing they are to help. And sometimes we talk ourselves out of it. Oh, well, Julie's so busy. So if I give her a call, you know, I don't want to frustrate her and, you know, ask her this stupid question. Actually, Julie wants to hear from the NGBs and she wants to hear, you know, what are, what are different things we're facing? And, and then she's always just connecting me to, to different people who've, who've already been there. So like, to me, that's the beauty of the USOPC family is the opportunity to, to learn from others if you're willing to ask. Oh, that's great. And, and I, I can sense that the HR um, you know, career there and in, in the SMART goals and, and many others, but I'll, I'll go to you real quick you know, from a kind of mentally dealing with the highs and lows of the, of the Paralympic games as a whole, just competing the, the ramp up the, 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 you know, obviously it's kind of like the crazy transition, right? You go through this massive competition and then it's gone, right? It's done. Um, how do you deal with that in terms of just getting to the next day and accomplishing what you want from a goals perspective? From, from my perspective, living through it, um, you know, when, when I was competing, I usually had like a couple of other major things going on in life. It could have been family, uh, could have been, you know, the fact that I was pursuing, you know, a pretty high impact career at the same time that I was playing. And so like my advice to, to younger athletes or newer athletes in the mix is, 
number one, to let them know there's going to be a post-Paralympics uh, lull, you know, like you just get hit with this thing where training and compete and preparing to compete at that level, it takes up so much of your mind share. And as soon as the competition's done, you know, there's, there's a pretty big void that's there. So number one, just get them to acknowledge it and understand that it's uh, going to be there. But number two is not, don't be so single threaded in your life. You can be an elite athlete and still be elite at something else in your life. And it's so important to have some of those other things from the perspective, if you don't achieve, you know, the result that you were hoping for, uh, let's say that's a gold medal. Um, we hope that that's what everyone would say is that your goal is a gold medal, right? But um, if, if you're unable to achieve that and you put all your eggs in that one basket, not having anything else could create a lot more mental stress uh, in your life. So for me, it's always trying to convince people that they can do more than one thing at a time. Julie, same question to you in a sense, but you know, the USA is the top medal count holder for all the Paralympic Games. How do you stay on top? Other than just other than just being Team USA. Right. There, I mean, there is the cachet of being Team USA. Um, you know, that's a, that's a tough battle, right? You know, it's a lot of people say it's, it's easier to get to the top and harder to stay there. That, that is 100% true because once you hit the top of that mental table, um, you know, whether it's collectively or in an individual sport, everybody else is gunning for you. They're trying to figure out what your secrets are, what you're doing to make your team so successful. Um, so it's always staying one step ahead. It's, it's working with the NGBs and the athletes and the coaches to continually improve. Um, you know, I think Will talked about in, improving that player pool for LA. It's collectively figuring out how do we best support all of Team USA and all of our sports to get those little bits of improvement. And, you know, that might be in a sports skill on the field of play. It could be through science and medicine. It could be through technology. Um, it's just making sure we're being, you know, very open-minded to everything that's out there that could have a positive impact on the athletes um, and, and not leaving any stone unturned in that respect. Yeah, it's, it'll be exciting to, to see uh, how many medals you can win this year. And, and, but at the same time, right, continue to keep on getting better and better and better. Obviously that being the goal um, to, to be better than you were, you know, yesterday. Right. And, and. Uh, Absolutely. Julie, as, as we wrap up um, last question for you, is there anything about the Paralympic Games that obviously you're, you're working in it that just the general uh, person wouldn't know? What's kind of that random fact that you're like, wow, like that was amazing. When I came to work here, this is what I realized. Yeah. I don't know that the random person wouldn't know it, they, but they might not. But Paralympic sport is at the same level as all other elite sport. Um, that's why I'm so thrilled that we're going to have increased coverage on, on NBC. And I think where you have sports where the rules of the game are very similar to what people might be already watching, right, in the pro sports space or the collegiate space or, or in the Olympics for that matter, once they see it in the Paralympic movement, all of a sudden it's like a light bulb moment of, wait a minute, that wheelchair basketball game was just as exciting as watching something, you know, in the final four or the NBA. Um, so I think it's, it's, you know, getting that exposure out there um, so that more and more people see that elite caliber of Paralympic sport. Well, I know you're going to plug basketball, of course, but if you had, and I can't ask this question to Julie, right? So uh, if you had to pick another sport that you're definitely going to be locked in and watching other than basketball, 
what would what what will it be? Well, there's there's more than one. You know, I'm, I'm going to want to check out some rugby. I'm going to want to check out tennis. I'm going to want to go to track and field and so, see all of the events that are uh, going on there. Swimming. I mean, you can you can really go across the board. The the biggest thing that's always been frustrating for me as, as an athlete when I go to these events, and now I'm going to be going as the press officer for wheelchair basketball, is just how limited an opportunity that you have as an administrator or as an athlete to see as much as you would want to see. Because we appreciate the athleticism that that goes into it and everything that the athletes did. So if other people are listening at home. Uh, my advice to you is to say you have zero limitations. I mean, obviously you have life, but um, you you have the opportunity to go and survey these different sports. And uh, to me, it doesn't matter which one you go and see, but just pick two or three at a minimum, make basketball one of them, but uh, pick two or three of them at a minimum and, and go check them out. I, I'm jealous that I won't have the ability to just be flexible enough to go and do that. I figured that'd be a slam dunk for you since, you know, you've got 21 other sports. Uh, we, we weren't going to list them all, but I definitely agree. We've had Joe Delagrave on before from, from a wheelchair rugby perspective, incredible story. Um, you know, looking forward to, to seeing what that team does as well, but Julie will really appreciate your time. Looking forward to obviously the upcoming Paralympic games and then LA 2028. Um, really appreciate you being a part of the sports ETA series. Uh, and thanks again for the time. Thanks for listening to today's episode on the Life in the Front Office podcast powered by BrainFuel. Remember, you can get 15% off your next purchase at BrainFuel.com, B-R-E-I-N, Fuel.com, with the code LIFO15, L-I-F-O-1-5 at checkout. And if you like BrainFuel, give us a shout out, comment, share, and leave a review.